You ever hear of like main character syndrome? You know, like you ever meet someone who has main character syndrome? It's the type of person who. <coughs> I think it's slightly different from being a Karen. Like a, Karen, a lot of Karens can be main character syndrome. And maybe we should stop using the word Karen. But anyway, that's a different sermon topic. But main character syndrome, I think we all know what it is. When, when, people, when someone thinks of themselves as the main character, as the star of the show, and so everything around them, everyone around them, needs to cater to them. And needs to, it reflects, uh, it revolves around them, and their needs, and their wants. And it doesn't really, I mean it matters, but it doesn't really matter how other people feel, or what other people are doing or going through, because if it doesn't affect me, then I don't care, if it does affect me, if it affects me good, I want more of it. If it affects me bad, I want less of it. That's all that matters. And I think we, in our moments of weakness and judgmentality, we can think of a few people in our brains who fit this mold. Uh, but my argument today is that um, many Christians, and perhaps many of us, and certainly myself are guilty of such a syndrome. And many Christians are guilty of having main character syndrome. That we are guilty of making our faith, making this religion about us. Because <clears throat> the primary questions that we have as we are, you know, perhaps trying our best to be faithful, genuine Christians. Primary questions we might be asking ourselves is, what do I have to do? What do I need to be accomplishing right now? How, do, how can I, what are the steps I can take to get to the next level in my faith? What are the, what are the priorities I need to set in order to grow closer and have a more intimate relationship with God. And from distance, we can see, we can view these questions in a, in a good light. And these are good questions to ask. These are great questions to ask. These are the things that should be of concern to us. They should be on our heart. How can I develop my relationship with God? And yet, if that becomes the primary question, if that becomes the ultimate question, we are guilty of main character syndrome. And <clears throat> what I find is that when we ask ourselves these kinds of questions as our priority, as our ultimate question, as uh, what, end, what can end up happening is a multitude of things. But just for example, sometimes it's... it's uh, because we're asking ourselves these questions, we're doing our best to answer these questions. And thereby answering the questions, we can develop, you know, good we can develop good habits, right? We can, we can have a steady, we can learn the scriptures, and we can engage in prayer, and we can serve, and we can um, develop fellowship with one another. But then, uh, when things start not going our way, and you've done all of these things, and you've, you've said, I've done all these things to hit the next level and to gain my relationship with God. But then you enter, you know, you um, encounter 
relational or financial or even moral obstacles or difficulties or failures, you can end up being a type of person who tries to hold God accountable. God, how could you do this to me? I've done this and I have done that. I have lived a holy life. How could this happen to someone like me? On the other hand, it could, it could also end up being that as you are pursuing holiness, pursuing righteousness, greatness, pursuing God, you find that it's really hard. It's really hard. Maybe even impossible. And I, you know, we, and, and then you might have the temptation, you know, the temptations, as I have had, to look at other Christians. And you see on social media, people, you know, got the nice devotional, put on their story, hey guys, going through Proverbs, or like, going through, and then you're like, dang it. And it, it hits you that you haven't picked up your Bible in like two weeks. Not even to church, you just bring your phone. And you realize, wow, the last time I've prayed was like, EMP uh, last semester. And the last time I really asked someone, how are you doing with your walk in Christ, was never. And then you get, you just, you just destroy. Because you're like, wow, why, what's the point if I'm just going to fail? What's the point of pursuing holiness if I'm just going to fall short every time? What's the point of pursuing goodness if I am not good enough? And so, you just give up. Because you have any characters. The beauty of reading, so, our brother Owen asked me a few weeks ago, he asked me a great question. He asked me, Jill, why are we reading through Romans verse by verse? Why are we doing that? It's a great question. I think you should have, every one of you should have asked that. But wait for him to ask that. Why are we reading Romans verse by verse? Now, this is not something I would do with every book of the Bible. Like, Old Testament, I think you kind of need to read it as a story, you know, like Esther. I need to know the narrative plots, right? Um, I wouldn't do this with, like, Revelation, because there's a lot going on there. Um, but, especially with the epistles, uh, Paul is explaining something. He's making an argument. And Essentially, every sentence that he says is a continuation of that argument. And so we need to be able to really pay attention to the argument and the, the, the ways that he's trying to persuade us of whatever he's trying to persuade us of, right? And every single verse, especially in Romans chapter 8, has some argument that he's trying to make to us, okay? <laughs> and the beauty of Romans 8, verse 3, and I think a lot of other places in the Bible, as we will see, makes the argument very clear that it is not about you. It is not about you. And because it's not about you, you can be free. Not, just, not even that, but you are free. Because it's not about you, you are free. One way a classmate of mine put it, 
It's not about you, but it does involve you. And so, and that's the argument that Paul is putting out in Romans 8, chapter, uh, verse 3. Because, how does he begin? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. Remember that he has that word for in there, which means it's a continuation of the argument he's trying to make in verse 2. And what does he say in verse 2? That you are free. For the law, the spirit of life, has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Why? Why are we free? For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. It's about God. His argument begins with God. And we see this time and time again. We are reminded time and time again. So it's crazy that we keep on forgetting that it is about God. You open to the first page of your Bible as we read in FNA this past Friday. In the beginning, God. It's about God. We read when God gives his people the law. The law that Paul is talking about right now. After he brings his people out of Egypt, what does he say? Obey this, obey this, obey this, then I'll be nice to you. No, what does he say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery, out of Egypt. And then comes the Ten Commandments. It's not the Ten Commandments first, and then I'll be your God. It's I'm your God. I am God. And I freed you, therefore obey. It's not the other way around. We do not obey in order to have a relationship with God. God has a relationship with us, and therefore we obey. <clears throat> and of course, again, anyone who's done confirmation or baptism with me knows Ephesians chapter 2. But God. But God, those two words that are the hinge point of our salvation story. But God. Because we have done everything. If you read Ephesians 2, 1 through 10, we have done everything to deserve the wrath of God. But God. Because of his great love. Because of the great love with which he loved us. As Paul says here, he has freed us in Christ Jesus through the spirit of life. In order to understand who we are as Christians, in order to understand what justification means, what it means to be made right before God, we need to understand that we are made right by God. We are made right because of God. And in order to understand our justification, our being made right before God, we must turn our gaze away from ourselves and towards our God. This world is going to tell you time and time again, in order to be really free, in order to experience true joy and true happiness, you need to know yourself. You need to express yourself the way, the, in the way that you think you need to express yourself. You need to be true to yourself. That's the, what the world tells you. And so, what is true to you is going to shift like the waves of the ocean. 
Bible says, Romans 8, 3 says, that the answer to all of our longings, the answer to all of our desires, the answer to our joy, to our freedom, true freedom, is found not in being true to ourselves, but in knowing the Lord our God. And so how can we know God? If it's all about God, if it starts with God, how can we know God? If it's not about what we do, how is it possible then that we can know God? We can only know God because he has first known us. We can know God only if he knows us first because God has done it. God has done it. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. God has done it. God has initiated the knowledge process. How can we come to know God? It's only because he has first introduced himself to us. And we need to be reminded of this again and again and again. That God provides the means in Genesis 22 is the story of Abraham, and God calls him to sacrifice Isaac, right? Calls him to sacrifice Isaac. And uh, I don't know how Isaac got to this point. After three days, he didn't like think to question what was going on. <laughs> and so like as he's there before the altar, it's at that point, after this three-day journey, you don't have any animals with them. So he's like, hey, wait a minute, Father, uh, where is the lamb? Where is the lamb that's going to be sacrificed? And Abraham, prophetically, he says to his son, his only son, God will provide for himself a burnt offering, my son. I'm really sad that... Uh, John will not be able to probably read this uh, with Professor Libby It's cool, but uh, think about think about Abraham in that moment. He was about to tie up his son and sharpen his dagger to sacrifice his son because that is what God commanded him to do. And knowing that his, his this son, the son of promise, the son he has waited decades for, his only son. He manages to tell him to his face, God will provide a lamb. Knowing full well that his son is the lamb. But indeed, the angel of God stops Abraham as he is lifting his dagger and says, Do not, do not kill your son. And indeed, when they turn around, there is a ram caught in a thicket, and God has provided. Indeed, what has God done? How, what is the way in which God has provided for us in order that we would know him? He sent his son, Jesus Christ. He sent his son, the Lamb of God. And that's what he did. <laughs> Jesus Christ 
is the great thing that he has done. Right? When we ask, what has God done? Right? God has done what the law beaten by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh before sin. That is what he has done. He has sent Jesus Christ. Now, in sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross, what did that accomplish? And in accomplishing that, how does that help us to know God? And how does that help us to avoid main character syndrome? It tells us in the latter half of verse 3, By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. He condemned sin in the flesh. All right, so. Okay, so let's, let's get this straight. We do not know God. Not only do we not know God, we cannot know God. Unless God does something first. And so God, in order for us to know Him, in order for us to be made righteous before Him, sent His Son. And the reason that He sent His Son was so that He would condemn sin. Jesus condemns sin. Alright? Now at this point, let's back up just a little bit. Because isn't that what the law does? Paul has been talking this whole time about the law and how the law is insufficient to save us, to justify us. Right? For the law of the spirit of life has set you free from the law of sin and death. That law of sin and death, isn't that what that's doing? <clears throat> the law of sin and death condemns sin. Think about the law in Leviticus and the law that God gave Moses. What is the point of that law? It's to show you your sin. And it's to condemn you for that sin. <clears throat> and so what does he mean that God has done this great thing through Jesus by condemning sin? Because that's just, isn't that just the same thing that the law did, and isn't that the reason why we need to be justified in the first place? I hope you're following this argument, because it's kind of crazy to me. So what's the point of sending Jesus? If the law is the thing that is condemning us, and the law, it's not because of the law, but it's because of our sin, that the law is pointing out our sin, and that's the reason why we are condemned, what is the point of Jesus? Why did he come if he's just going to do the same thing? The reason is this. What God has done is something that the law, keywords here, weakened by the flesh, could never do. Why does the law condemn our sin and therefore condemn us? It's because we could never fulfill the law. The law is there, the law is good. And we, as Children of God, as those called by God, are called to, to obey the law, to follow in the way of God. And yet we find again and again that we cannot. And when we can, we are filled with pride. We are puffed up. We become like the religious Pharisees, thereby being lawbreakers in our pride. So what is our hope? What is going to free us from the law that condemns our sin, condemns our pride? It has to be someone 
who is, who is like us, but unlike us in every way. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. A man who you can touch, a man who weeps, a man who laughs, a man who, if you drive nails through his wrists, will bleed. And yet this man, who is, who is like us in every way, who hungers, who sleeps, fulfills the law perfectly. But the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus, the one who has fulfilled every iota of the law completely and fully. That's what God has done. What we could never do. By sending his son, not only as a man, but a man who obeyed the law perfectly, and yet, being without sin, was condemned to a cross. Dying in our place. That is why we are free. It's not because we said a prayer. It's not because <clears throat> we are following the law. And, uh, we're, it's not because we undergo some religious ritual. It's because of what God has done through his son, Jesus Christ, on the cross. The power of the gospel. And this is the power. The power of the gospel is that Jesus Christ. Uh, the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that. Uh, therefore, okay, so because Jesus Christ has fulfilled the law perfectly, fulfilled the law fully, that is how we can know that the proclamation of our righteousness through the Spirit, as Paul says in Romans 8 2, that's how we know it's true. That's how we know it's real. Because even though we fall short of the law, we fall short of the glory of God, God has done it. God has done it through His Son, Jesus Christ. The power of the gospel is that the proclamation of our righteousness through the Spirit is proof of the reality of our righteousness. The proclamation of our righteousness is the reality of our righteousness. We are not only, uh, so we're not only free from the condemnation of sin, but we are free from the bondage of sin. We are free not only from the punishment of sin, but we are free to live holy and righteous. Not because that holy and righteous living buys us free. It is because we are free. And it's because God has chosen to know us. And it's because God has given his son, Jesus Christ, for us that we can now live as those who know what freedom really means. It is the Christian religion alone. As you guys know, come on. The Christian religion alone offers true freedom. Because every other religion requires that we work and we do something and that we accomplish something in order to please the divine. And not just religions, but even our secular atheist culture says the same thing. In order to be accepted by us, in order to 
please us. You must first accomplish this. You must obey this. You must say this. And yet, Christianity is the good news that the divine was first pleased with us. That though we did nothing to deserve his goodness and love, he clothed us in the same righteousness as Christ, the one whom the Father calls my beloved Son and whom I am well pleased. He clothes us in that righteousness because Christ has fully obeyed the law. And so even though the gospel does condemn our sin, it frees us from that sin because consequence and the weight of that sin and the bondage to sin has been placed upon the cross. So therefore, <clears throat> not only are we freed from the condemnation of sin, we are freed from the bondage of sin. That is the difference. The law simply condemns, but Christ lifts up the bondage of sin so that we can live holy and righteous lives. We are free from many things through the gospel. But may it be that we are freed from our main characters. That we make this religion something that we have to do, that we have to accomplish. There are things we have to do. There are, there is the word of God that we must obey. But how is that even possible in the first place? It's because God has done with the law. We could by the flesh, could not take this time to pray and to thank God for what he has done. That he empowers us to live godly lives. Not to earn his favor, not to earn his love, but because he has given us his love first. That he has poured out his favor over us first through his son, Jesus Christ, who obeyed the law perfectly. So that even though the gospel condemns, we are free. We are free to go and sin no more.